Well, take your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, and I've entitled my message, Rest for the Stressed. Rest for the Stressed. Time Magazine reported in the 1960s about a Senate subcommittee that was doing a study on time management. Expert testimony, they brought in a number of experts. Expert testimony was given that at the rate in which technology was advancing in our society, this is in the 60s, that the American work week would soon be reduced to about 22 hours a week within the next 20 years. So they said by the 1980s, Americans will only have to work 22 hours a week. The great challenge Americans would face, they predicted, would be figuring out what to do with all of their free time now that they wouldn't be working 40 or 50 hours a week. Well, now 60 years later, or now 60 years later, and technology that we have today has far surpassed anything that they had in the 1960s, obviously. And I don't know of anybody that is saying, yeah, I'm working a 20-hour work week. Now, maybe, maybe you're supposed to be working a 40-hour work week, but because of COVID, you're really only you know, working 20 hours and you're playing with the dog and the kids the rest of the time. But I don't know of anybody that says I'm working a 20-hour work week and I have tons of excess time. So technology didn't deliver as they thought it would in reducing our work week. Most people would say, I'm not enjoying a 20-hour work week, I'm enjoying the rat race. Or I've been living life in the fast lane, they would describe it. Or I feel like I'm on the treadmill and I don't exactly know how to get off. Matter of fact, our culture, our country has coined a medical term for people that live at such a frenzied pace. It's called chronic fatigue syndrome. Life is so busy, so fast, they feel like they have chronic fatigue syndrome. If all we needed was physical rest, we could take a nap. If all we needed was emotional rest, we could go on vacation. But that's not what Jesus is talking about in these verses. He's talking about a spiritual rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So this is talking about a spiritual rest. And this is not the only place in the Bible that it's talked about. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, the writer there says, There remains, therefore, a rest unto the people of God. A rest unto the people of God. Matter of fact, in that chapter, he talks about God created the world, and then he rested. And he talked about the Israelites coming into the land of promise, and Joshua promised them a rest. And he talked about the Israelites working and not resting in the Lord. So that's what it's talking about is spiritual rest. So in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus gives us three commands. I want you to notice them with me that lead to spiritual rest. First one is, he says, come to me. And that describes God's invitation. Come to me. That describes God's invitation. All you who labor, notice that phrase, all you who labor, come to me, all you who labor, is talking about self-effort. Self-effort. It is describing conscientious people that are doing 
their best to balance the scales between their good works and their evil deeds. They're trying to do their very best to make sure that their good works outweigh their evil deeds and that they'll be accepted by God. How can they ever be acceptable to God by their good works? We understand as Bible believers that doesn't happen. How can you ever know, people that think that way, how can you ever know if you've done enough? How can you ever know that the scales are tipped in your favor on your good work? There's no religion meter that can measure it. There's no righteousness scales that you can stand on and say, well, my righteousness outweighs my evilness. Obviously not. Religion is hard labor, and some of you know that firsthand. Religion is hard labor. Christianity is simple trust. And that's what makes Christianity different from all world religion, because in world religions, you've never quite done enough. You never know if you've done enough. But Christianity is resting. It's trusting. It's relying on what Jesus did. Many of you know I grew up in a Roman Catholic home. There is no Roman Catholic, even an ardent Roman Catholic, that has confidence that he's going to heaven. That's why they have the seven sacraments, where you're doing things to try and earn God's favor. And the Catholic Church teaches that when you die, you're not going to go immediately to heaven. You're going to go to purgatory. You'll burn there for a while. Some of your sins will burn off. And then at some point, you'll be released to go to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when we rest in God, we have a confidence in our salvation. Out here on the wall, we have Romans 8.1. I picked that verse because it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, you'll never be condemned because your sins are under the blood. You can rest in that fact. The cross is the place of exchange where my sins were placed on Christ and his righteousness is transferred to my account. We're encouraged by Christ to lay at his feet our heavy burden of sin. Maybe you feel like you're carrying around a burden. I can't say that without helping think of Pilgrim's Progress and Christian laying his burdens down. Maybe you're carrying a heavy burden of sin, your wicked choices or dysfunctional relationships or prideful intentions or, or godless endeavors. We all experience those things. It's part and parcel of the human experience. It's part of being the species of humanity. Matter of fact, Job said it this way, man who is born of woman, that's pretty inclusive, I think we would say. Man who is born of woman is of few days, he doesn't live that long, and his days are full of trouble, Job 14.1. They're full of trouble and sorrow and sin and, and things that we wish that we did not have in our life, but it's reality. Sin is too big of a burden for anyone to carry through life. God never intended for you to carry the burden of sin. Sin is too big of a burden to carry through life, and it's certainly too big of a burden to carry into eternity. That's why Jesus says right here in this verse, come, come unto me. He'll take your burden. He'll forgive your sins. He'll take your load. 
He'll deal with your problems. He says, come. Human nature being what it is, we can't really imagine a holy, perfect God wanting to be near us. But he's saying, come. Matter of fact, in other places, he describes himself as having open arms and wanting to invite the Israelites to come to him like a hen does with her chicks. We can't imagine a sinless, perfect, holy, righteous God inviting wicked sinners with all of our dripping, oozing wickedness into his arms. I want to quote from Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, We project onto Jesus our skewed instincts about how the world works. Human nature dictates that the wealthier person, the more they tend to look down on the poor. The more beautiful a person, the more they are put off by the ugly. We assume that someone so high and exalted has a corresponding difficulty drawing near to someone who is despicable and unclean. Sure, Jesus comes close to us. We agree because the Bible says so, but he holds his nose when he does so. End of quote. That's how we picture God because human nature is somewhat that way. Now, hopefully it changes as we get saved, but we can't picture a loving, holy, righteous God wanting to be near us in our condition. But he says to us, come, I want you to be near me. When a leave does not relieve, and you have more than a headache, you have a heartache, you have a soul ache. If you've got sin, and you've got troubles, and you've got heartaches, and you've got burdens, Jesus invites you to come to him. And he's speaking to you right now. Maybe you've never trusted Christ, he wants you to come to him today. Maybe you know him and you've known him for years, but you're carrying around your burdens instead of confessing your sin. You're carrying around your burdens instead of relieving yourself of them and giving them to him and entering into his rest. Nicholas Cage, most of you know that name, the movie star. He said, there is a hole in the soul of my generation We've inherited the American dream, but where do we take it? He didn't know where to go. And I've read in, about his life. He's owned, I think, five mansions around the country, maybe some overseas. He went bankrupt and had multiple marriages. And his life, personal life, is a wreck. I feel bad for him. He's inherited the American dream on a large scale, but he says, what do we do with this? Harrison Ford, you know that name as well. Harrison Ford, whose movies have grossed over $5 billion, said, and I quote, you only want what you ain't got. He goes on to say, what ain't you got? And he says, peace. You ain't got peace. Not the greatest English. But we get what he's saying, peace. So if, a, if the problem is a lack of peace, what is the prescription? Jesus tells us what that is. He says, not only come to me, that's his invitation, inviting us, but he says, take my yoke. That is a description of our submission. 
That describes our submission to the Lord. So the answer to peace is submitting to the Lord. That's what he's inviting us to come and do, is to learn of him and submit to him. He says here, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How do we find rest? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Learn from me. I think everyone here understands, even though you may have not seen one up close and personal, but you understand what a yoke is. A yoke is a, usually a wooden harness, we would say, that hooks two oxen together, maybe even two donkeys or possibly two horses, but generally it's two oxen. It's a wooden harness that connects around the necks of oxen so they can pull together. That was a euphemism. That was a Jewish statement that they used to describe, and it was used in the New Testament as Jesus uses it here, when it says to take the yoke, it meant to learn from a rabbi, to become a disciple of a particular rabbi. There were many rabbis living at the time of Christ, and they all had a little different slant on the Jewish life. You would submit yourself to a rabbi, you would become a yoke fellow with that particular rabbi. He is telling them, that they should submit themselves to the Lord. Now, this phrase seems perplexing to us at first glance. Taking on a yoke, how can a yoke be the answer to weariness? A yoke is heavy. A yoke means work. How is that the answer to weariness? Yoking up sounds like additional work. We're thinking hammock for rest. Jesus says yoke for rest. The difference. And it's one of the most counterintuitive aspects of Christianity. Taking on the yoke is the answer to relieving us of our burden and finding rest. It's counterintuitive to how we would think that we are declared right with God not once we begin to get our act together. You realize we're not declared right with God when we begin to get our act together. But once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will, that, God, I'm never going to get it together. I'm always going to be dependent upon you. I'm always going to have things lacking in my life. I'm never going to measure up. And that's why he says, take my yoke upon you. If you have been trying to go it alone in your life, or if you've been trying to go it alone in the Christian life, in your own strength, without Christ's enablement, you'll be worn down and worn out. If you're looking at the Christian life from a legalistic set of lenses, that I have to do all these things to earn God's favor and receive his blessings, you're going to be worn out and worn down. It is walking moment by moment in the Spirit. And I think you understand that a yoke is a double yoke. There's a place for two oxen to put their heads and neck into. It's the double yoke. That's why he's using this illustration. However, in this double yoke, the secret to dealing with life's trials and burdens is getting harnessed up with Jesus Christ. It's, it's putting the yoke on, and he's on the other side. In other words, when we yoke up with Jesus Christ, he does the heavy lifting that we've been trying to do it on our own. 
as we go our own way and do our own thing and, and try to maybe even live the Christian life in our own way. So he's saying, yoke up with me, let me do the heavy lifting. Learn of me. Take my yoke upon you. Matter of fact, the secret to dealing with life's trials and burdens is getting harnessed up with Jesus Christ. Jesus said his yoke is easy. Interesting Greek word. It means well-fitted. You could even translate it tailor-made. God says, if you'll yoke up with me, I'll tailor-make. I'll fit especially for you a yoke that is designed for you to be hooked up and harnessed up with me. That's what he's saying here. Every surrendered believer will tell you, my yoke is easy. Since I've hooked up with Jesus Christ and I've been living for Jesus Christ, my life is easy. My life is much easier than it was when I was unsaved or I was living maybe in rebellion. Believers can say, my yoke fits well. It's tailor-made for me. I don't even notice it as I follow the Lord. A yoke pictures a couple of things here. Let me point out, a yoke pictures connection. That's why he says, so you can be with me. There's a closeness when you're yoked up with someone. Animals, oxen that were yoked up together, they were in close proximity. So there is a connection. You'll be with me. Yokes are made for two, not one. Don't live your life apart from God, in other words. That's the application. Don't try and live your life apart from God. A yoke not only shows connection, a yoke pictures direction. That's why he says, follow me. Gives us direction. You cannot be yoked to Jesus and go your own way anymore. Otherwise, you're going to be kicking against the pricks. You're going to be pulling against the yoke. A yoke pictures cooperation. Work with me. That's why in the Bible it says, don't hook up a yoke on an ox and an ass because they have a different pace. They have different strengths. They're different heights. It doesn't work well together. That's why the Bible says that we're not to be yoked together with unbelievers in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 because we have different worldview and different values. A yoke pictures cooperation as well. Before Christ, we lived for earthly things. Now our lives can have eternal impact because we're living for Jesus and we're yoked up with him. You know, life, really, if you boil it down, life is all about determining who we will serve and what we will do. I mean, for all of us, this is determining who am I going to serve? Am I going to serve myself? Am I going to serve my boss? Am I going to serve my spouse? Am I going to serve my children? And then the list could go on. Or am I going to serve God? Those aren't necessarily impossible to do both. They're not mutually exclusive. But we have to determine who we're going to serve. We have to determine I'm going to serve God. And then what am I going to do? What am I going to do with my gifts and my talents and my ability, my background and my time? What am I going to do? That's what life is all about. Who am I going to serve? What am I going to do? It's as simple as that. Because everyone in this world is serving a master. 
Everyone here is serving a master. Everyone outside of the church is serving a master. Number three, he says, learn from me. And this describes biblical sanctification. Come to me describes God's invitation. Take my yoke describes our submission. And third, learn from me describes biblical sanctification. He says, learn of me. The Christian life is a, is a lifelong learning process. We often use the word progressive sanctification. We understand that when it comes to total redemption, there are three critical terms that we often use. We talk about salvation. It is punctiliar in the Greek language. In other words, it happens at a specific point in time, and it has forever results. Uh, I, I know when I got saved, when I was born again, okay, that's my salvation experience. But really, salvation is the whole thing. But salvation, the next one is sanctification, and we often use the term progressive sanctification because we don't get grown up overnight. We don't become mature immediately. It is a lifelong pursuit of God. Progressive sanctification is likened to walking. This whole redemption process, salvation, sanctification, glorification, right now we're in this process of progressive sanctification, allowing God to change us. We're learning of him. That's why he says, learn from me, learn of me. What he's saying in this verse. And all of us are ignorant on different subjects. Some people know more math. Some people know more engineering. Some people know more science. Some people maybe know a little more Bible. Some people know more about accounting or whatever it might be. We're all ignorant on different subjects. And the question is here that Jesus is throwing out to us is, are you willing to learn about the Lord? Are you willing to to put your neck in the yoke and your shoulder into the work and grab the wheel and say, I am going to be in a lifelong pursuit of coming to know the Lord better and better. I'm going to start growing up, spiritually speaking. I am convinced from being in the ministry for this long, these 40 years, our biggest problem is not lack of funds, it's not familial issues in the family. It's not work problems. It, it's not dysfunctional relationship. Our biggest problem is we know so little about our Savior. That's the biggest problem of anybody in this room. Our biggest problem, myself included, is I know so little of my Savior, what I should by now. And it spills out into every other area of life. He desires that you abide with him, that you have a full knowledge of his ways. And when you do, you become like him. You know, the only two words that Jesus used in his entire ministry and that's recorded for us in the New Testament to describe his heart are right here in this verse. Now, we know a lot about Jesus' work, his death, burial, and resurrection. His teaching, the parables, Sermon on the Mount. We know a lot about doctrine of Jesus Christ, but most of us really don't know his heart. This is the only time Jesus gives an expose of his own heart, and he describes his heart, his innermost being, as being gentle and lowly. That's why I recommend to you this book. I quoted from it already. 
by Dave Ortland called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Of all the books I read last year, this was by far the most impacting book I read because it revealed the heart of Christ. It was the most encouraging book I have read in many years. That Jesus is gentle and lowly. He doesn't, when we come to him with our problems and our sins and we still have them, he reaches out to us. It isn't, it isn't like the little boy who's touching a slug for the first time. Slimy, wormy, and he screws up his face and sticks out his finger and touches it and then lets out a yelp and says, ah! That isn't how Jesus comes to us. He wraps his arms around us. And all of our fallenness and brokenness and dysfunction and sin... And he says, come unto me. I want you to know my heart. I'm gentle. I'm lowly. I'm humble. I'm meek. This is how he describes his heart. As gentle and lowly. Matthew eleven twenty nine. He doesn't describe himself as exacting and precise. He doesn't describe himself as tolerant and overlooking. He's not. Or disappointed and frustrated with us. He doesn't have his finger on the trigger, as someone said. God is willing to put up with a lot if we will just admit to him our only thing he's looking for us is for us to admit our sins and our brokenness, and our failings. Not that we've got it together. He's willing to put up with a lot. We read in the Old Testament that God was provoked to anger. And truthfully, we're not surprised. After continued idolatry and, and sin and forsaking of God, we read that finally God was provoked to anger. He can be provoked to anger. We get that. But never does it mention that he was provoked to love or that he was provoked to mercy. No, his anger requires provocation because he is patient. He is slow to anger. He's very gracious with his people. It takes a lot to tick him off, maybe we could say. But he is quick to love and he's quick to offer his mercy. He's quick to offer grace and forgiveness if we just come to him and ask him for it. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth towards his children, Ortland makes the point. The dam is ready to burst at any moment. Uh, all we do is come to him. People can be harsh and judgmental. Jesus drew people to himself, and I'm saying that even about Christian people. Christian people can be harsh and judgmental. Jesus drew people to himself because he genuinely cared for individuals. They sought him out. Matter of fact, the Pharisees said he eats and drinks with sinners. He loves those, those uh, low lifers. The prostitutes came to him. The blind came to him. The common people sought him gladly, the Bible says. They came to him. He drew them to him. Are we that way? People seek us out because 
were humble and lowly and forgiving and generous and kind and gracious. We need to learn his gentleness. We all understand what gentleness is. It's strength under control. We need to learn his gentleness. Sometimes religious people can be quite judgmental. We also need to learn his humility. Humility is selflessness. That's all humility is. It's not thinking about my agenda, what I want, my plans. It's just humility is selflessness. We are automatically attracted to people who are interested in us, selfless people, who ask us questions about ourselves. They're not trying to tell you their latest incident, their latest story. They want to know about you. They're selfless. That's what humility is. And by the power of the cross, we can learn to put other people ahead of us, and in turn, we end up drawing them to our Savior. In my reading about this text, I learned that in primitive farming, and it's still done today in many parts of Southeast Asia and even in Africa, where they use oxen, they use a yoke. They use it a lot in planting rice and preparing the rice patties. But in my reading, I learned that in primitive farming, where oxen are used, the general practice was to yoke up a young, inexperienced ox with a seasoned, mature ox. The dumb ox, that's what they're called, that's the inexperienced ox, the young ox, he's called a dumb ox, we're familiar with that term. The dumb ox, or the younger ox, learned from the older ox when they're yoked up together. And that's the picture. I don't think he's being quite so crass as I am and saying you're a dumb ox, but that's really what he's saying. You're uninitiated, you're untaught, you're unlearned, but yoke up with me. I'm the experienced ox, Jesus is saying. Learn from me, just like in the agricultural picture. If you feel like you're trudging through the furrows, pulling your burdens behind you, maybe to an early grave. Jesus' words to you, to me, all of us, is that you need spiritual rest. You don't need more entertainment, greater diversion, escape from responsibility. You need spiritual rest. Jesus says, come to me, Take my yoke, learn from me. That's the rest that he's promised to the stressed. Let's pray. Father, we know that you're inviting both sinners and believers in this text. We know that we can't do anything that earns us our salvation. We're to come to you and rest in your finished work on Calvary. And we would ask if there is someone that's entered our service today and they don't know you. We're happy that they're here. We're excited that they heard from this text of Scripture. And we pray that today would be the day that they will enter into your rest, resting in what you've accomplished. For some here, maybe they're saved, they're believers, but their life is full of frenzy and busyness and they don't sequester themselves away to time with you and drawing upon your strength and learning of you 
and ordering their life in a way that pleases you. Help them to change their habits and change their ways by by yoking up with Jesus Christ and learning from Him and of Him. We pray in Jesus' name.